0: All right, everybody ready to get started? I'm going to shut this door, okay? We have a lot to do tonight. So if you have a piece of paper, this is how we're going to start tonight, all right? If you have a piece of paper at the very top, very, very top, all right, where you typically would not be writing any notes, go all the way up there and I want you to write down the following it will not make any sense right now. Some of you may catch on to what it is. Some of you may. If you do, that's okay. You can just like raise your hand and go, oh, I know what you're doing. And if you don't, that's okay. All right, everybody ready? At the very top. Very, 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 very top. Write down the following. A. The letter A. Comma. B. Comma. C comma D comma C comma B comma A All Right. So what letters have I told you to write down? ABCD CBA a, B, C, C, right. That's a literary device That's used by authors. And we're going to explain what that literary device is because it's going to be very important in what we look at tonight. All right? Let me me repeat those. Everybody got those down? A, B, C, D. C, B, A. All right? I'm giving that to you at the beginning because I I want you to have this down. All right? Okay? Everybody got that? All right. Now... This week, for the Bible study exercise, the entire week has been dedicated to one very, 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 very important topic. And what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at that topic, but in a, hopefully in a meaningful way, and those letters I just gave you are going to be very key, be a very important key in trying to understand how this topic is kind of demonstrated or displayed in a historical narrative all right there's a there's a literary device used in the historical narrative that really covers the subject that we have spent all all week for the bible study exercise working on and i started the bible study exercise this week asking everyone to really think about the following six things Sometimes I place these as a question form. Sometimes I just place them in a, as a statement. But if you want to write these down, write these down. And I, and, and I want you to think about them this evening, whether you're here, present, or listening live. I want everyone to really think these through because this is so, the whole week has really been focused on this, these concepts. Are everybody ready? All right, here we go. I'm moving up the microphone a little bit. Here we go. Number one, I want you to think of the worst thing someone has ever done to you. Or you can put it in a question form. What is the worst thing that anyone has ever done to you? The very worst thing. I want you to think about it. Not only do I want you to think about it, I want you to, if if there's any feeling still there, Fill those feelings of the worst thing that has ever, has ever been done to you. And I'm pretty sure that you don't have to spend a lot of time thinking about it. I bet you you're really quick to go, oh, yep, remember that. You may even remember the day, the month, the hour, the minute, the location, the weather. Okay, you may remember everything. Right? Now, some people may have so many bad things that's, that's been done to them. They can't quite remember one. Okay, but whatever you need to do. Think of the worst thing that has has ever been done to you. Number two, think of how someone has betrayed you. How you've been betrayed in some way, shape, or form. Now, that may be the worst thing someone has ever done to you. So it may be the same answer. That's okay. But sometimes someone's done something really bad with me, but then you almost put the betrayal that you suffered in a completely different category, right? Hey, someone did something really bad to me, but whoa, whoa. Someone betrayed me, and I, and I see that in a completely different category. Worst thing someone has ever done to you, and how someone has betrayed you. Number three, think of how someone has hurt you. The worst hurt that you've ever experienced. Now, the reason I'm separating this is, is this, make sure you understand this. Someone may have done something really, really horrible to you, right? And you've got it like at a level 10. But someone may have done something that may appear to be insignificant, but for some reason, that little thing hurts you far more than the big thing. I, I, know, I think there's, you probably can agree that that sometimes happens. Like someone did something so bad and you're like, man, that was so messed up. But for some reason, it was some little thing that you see as, as being the thing that caused you the most emotional hurt or whatever, whatever kind of trauma it caused. I want you to really think about that. I want you to feel that. I want you to know it. I want you to understand it. And about the time you're like, man, yeah, I remember this, right? Some of those negative feelings starting to rise up and you're like, okay, yeah, can I, can I talk about it? Like you may even want to stand up and start, no, no, just, just stay, stay seated, but, but I want you to remember it. And about the time you really start getting really bothered by it and really get upset, now I want to flip this, the script completely. All right? And I'm going to take each one of those. I'm going to reverse them. And you probably know how I'm going to reverse them. I want you to think of the worst thing you have ever done to someone. Now, I know immediately you may say, well, I mean, I made a mistake. But really, you may immediately start trying to defend yourself. Don't defend yourself because I'm not going to see your list. I don't need to know what it was. We're not going to post it on the Internet. But I want you to just be honest. The worst thing you have ever done to someone. The worst thing you have ever done. You know, obviously, what would be the second one? How have you betrayed? Think of the time you betrayed someone—a great betrayal that you inflicted upon someone. And then, what would be the third one? Think of the way that you hurt someone. That you hurt someone in a horrible way. Now, as you look at those six, right, some of them may be linked together. It may may be just one big thing that you group all of these together. That's okay. But here's what I want you to think about. When you look at the top three and the bottom three, right, look at the top three and the bottom three, here's what I want you to try to identify. Which one of those things do you still feel the most from an emotional standpoint? Which one still brings up the, the strongest emotion, The strongest feeling. Now, someone this week, in part of doing the Bible study exercise, it was interesting, they identified it as, for them, the thing that stood out of them the most is the the thing that they feel the most dead to. Like, they don't feel like raw emotion. They almost, a numbness and a deadness is the thing that stands out to them the most. Whatever the case is, out of those six, which one do you feel the most about? And what do we tend? To, where, where do we tend? To, where is the tendency to have the greatest emotion towards? What has been done to us? We have a tendency when it comes to what we have done to others to say things like, "Well, nobody's perfect. Everyone's made mistakes. Everyone's messed up. We've all done the best we can." Do what? Oh, okay. I thought you were talking to me. I'm like, do I need to come over here? Okay, all right. All right. Like we tend to have a tend- We have a tendency. We have a tendency to to minimize what we have done and maximize what's been done to us. Everyone knows. come on. We all know that, right? I mean, when it's been done to us, we know it. I mean, rarely do we call up a counselor and it's like, I need to come talk to you about the things I've done to other people. Usually we go to the counselor to say, I need counseling on what people have done to me. Now, there's nothing wrong with going about what's been done to you. I'm not saying there's anything negative about it. I'm saying we just have a tendency. That's what we can't forget. Now, I'm not saying that there are some people who can never forgive themselves what they've done. I'm not saying that there aren't people who struggle with that. That's why I wanted to go both ways with this, okay? Does that make sense? All right, now, if you look at that, you probably have a good idea then to know what we've been studying all week, all right? All right. All week, we have been looking at a, a historical narrative in Genesis. I gave people a number of chapters to read and work on. And, but we've been looking at those chapters because we have spent this week looking at the concept of bitterness. The concept of bitterness. Now, I, I, we could do a little word study on bitterness, but I already gave everyone the assignment to do uh, working on that. So let me just give you a, a simple definition. Bitterness is defined as anger and disappointment and how you have been treated. Bitterness and anger, and or bitterness is defined as anger and disappointment at how you have been treated. Now, typically, someone would say bitterness is anger and disappointment at how you've been treated unfairly. I'm just going to be, I'm going to displace how you've been treated. And the the reason I'm going to say this Is for a couple, well, we'll just go to the very, I think in a sense, the first case of where we see some real bitterness and anger, right? Is Cain and Abel. Was Cain treated unfairly? Uh, What, you tell me. No, I would say he wasn't treated unfairly, right? But he still felt bitter and disappointed. So sometimes we can feel bitterness and disappointment and anger, even when it may may, may not have been treated in an unfair way. So I'm going to say bitterness is anger, disappointment, envy, at how we have been treated, whether fairly or unfairly. I'm going to change that up a little bit. I know that goes against probably the typical, maybe clinical definition, but that's the way we're going to go. Bitterness is synonymous with resentment and envy. Resentment and envy. Now, it may seem like, well, okay. Bitterness, what an interesting topic. But I'm not that interested in your interesting topic. I'm going to move on. I'll say that it's interesting, but I'm not that interested in it. A lot of people may see, who cares? But we've been talking about now for weeks and the Bible said he exercises of spiritual pitfalls. And a great spiritual pitfall is bitterness. If you have it, you find yourself in a pit with it. And there's obviously there's one text of scripture that we all know. Everyone knows this passage, right? Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. And for those I put a different verse for the Bible memory verse this week, and because it's important what we're going to be talking about tonight. But this will end up on the Bible uh, memory app for probably this evening. All right. Hebrews chapter 12. Everybody there? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says, Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Look diligently. Lest any man fall of the grace of God, or fail of the grace of God, I should say. Lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. It's a warning to be on the lookout for what? Bitterness. Why do you have to be on the lookout for bitterness? There's two reasons there. Well, no, it talks about the failing of the grace of God, but be careful of bitterness because of two things. It will trouble you and defile others. You have to be on the lookout for bitterness because it will trouble you and it will defile others. The more bitter you are, the more trouble you cause yourself spiritually, emotionally, physically, but then you will defile those around you With it, you will become the corrupting influence because of the corruption inside of you, which is that bitterness. All right, everybody understand that? Now, I could go into a full blown discussion on bitterness right now, which is what my notes originally had. But then I'm like, wait a minute, there's something interesting going on here in the text I gave everyone to read. Because the text I gave everyone to read this week was the last, what, eight, about eight, seven chapters of, of Genesis. Because it deals with the kind, of the kind of the conclusion, the climax of the story of Joseph. And everyone here knows the story of Joseph. We've already done some study. I've done some preaching here in the church on it just recently. So everyone should remember the basic story. Let's go through it, right? Joseph was the favorite son, right? Favorite son. Everything was going great for Joseph. His father loved him more then all the rest, he got a coat of many colors. In fact, he was able to tell on his brothers to his dad, right? Everything was going great for them. Not only that, he was getting dreams seemingly to indicate that everyone was going to bow down to him and he wanted to make sure his brothers knew about it, right? Everything was going great for Joseph. Everything was wonderful for Joseph. And so his father tells him to go check on his brothers because his brothers are out taking care of the, of the flock, Right? And he goes and he tries to find his brothers. Can't really find out where they are. He finally finds them. And what he doesn't know is everything's going great for him. But his brothers are filled with what? Bitterness. Bitterness. Envy. Resentment. Anger. Because they feel, in a sense, that they have been treated unfairly by their arrogant brother who thinks he's better than everyone else and probably their father who's a jerk for not loving them as much as they love that no good, lousy Joseph. So they get so upset that their bitterness goes from an emotion to an action. And they decide, you know, we're going ki- to kill our brother. We're going to kill our brother. We're gonna, I mean, that's, that's, that, that's pretty bad when bitterness gets that bad, Right? I'm going to kill my brother. And they, they finally like, okay, well, we won't kill him. We'll just throw him in a pit and then ultimately sell him as a slave. So Joseph goes from favorite son to a slave. And he ends up in Egypt. Now, things go pretty well because even though he's in a really bad situation, well, he seems to prosper. But remember, he's still a slave. Sometimes we look at the, how things go well with him in these bad situations and seem like, well, what does he have to complain about? I don't know. He's a slave in Egypt away from his family. It's so weird how when it's other people, we're like, well, what's your problem, right? We would be whining and complaining the whole time. But things seem to be going well until he gets falsely accused, right? Accused of doing something that's not a good thing to be accused of, right? Next thing you know, he ends up in prison. Okay, well, but even in prison, things seem to be going pretty good, right? He has this ability to interpret dreams, and so he helps some people out interpreting dreams. He's like, hey, just don't forget me. And, they, well, they forget him. Now, for for at least two years, I think, is best we can figure out. At least two years, he is forgotten. Pharaoh has a dream. So he's called, finally, someone's like, oh, remember that guy I was in prison with? He can help us. So Joseph comes. He interprets the dream, right? And remember, the dream is pretty basic, straightforward. This was last week's Bible study exercise. It's going to be seven bad years. or seven good years going to be seven bad years. During the seven good years, let's store up so that in the seven bad years, we have something to preserve ourselves, right? So Joseph's like, or Pharaoh's like, okay, man, you've got it all figured out. I'll make you second in charge. Once again, everything's going good for, but remember, he's still a, he's still under the control of them. He's still far from home. He still hasn't seen his family. It's still not a great situation. And this brings everything to this dramatic encounter that he's going to have because his brothers and his father are experiencing the seven bad years. There's a famine. There's starvation. So his father sends them where? To Egypt and who's second in charge in Egypt? Joseph. All right. And their brothers are going to come asking for food. Now, there could be an immediate going. <laughs> yeah. You want food for, me? <laughs> just get out of here. Just, I don't even know who you are anymore, right? Okay, but the, there's something interesting that happens because Joseph goes through this kind of long production, this big production that finally has its dramatic emotional conclusion, but something happens a number of times leading up to the dramatic conclusion, and I'm going to give you seven verses. And I want you to identify what happens here. Are you ready? Okay. And hopefully all of my uh, references are correct. Because I have references here to give context. And then I have references just to give you the thing. So I'm going to give you the references to give you the thing. I've got, I've got some, what, what, this is basically what happened. I noticed these seven. And I'm like, this is weird. Something weird's going on here. And after I started trying to figure out, I started looking and digging into what's going on. And then a a different source kind of took that and then built upon it. So I'm going to be, I'm I'm using a little bit of what I found with with something else, all right? So I just want to make sure you have it all put together. Everybody ready? Here's the first one, all right? Genesis 42, I'm going to give you the reference and hopefully if it's not wrong. Genesis 42, verse 24, just Genesis 42, 24. Genesis 42, uh, 42 uh, 24, right? All right speak, uh, go over to verse 22. And they knew not that Joseph understood them, for he spake unto them by an interpreter, and he turned himself about from them and wept, and returned to them again and communed with them and took from them uh, Simeon and bound him before their eyes. Everybody got that? All right. Next passage, Genesis forty three thirty. Genesis forty three thirty And Joseph made haste, for his bowels did yearn upon his brothers, and he sought where to weep, and he entered into his chamber and wept there. Now, I don't think it takes a, you know, a seminary education. Everybody see what's familiar or similar between these verses so far? He's weeping. All right, so now I think you get the idea. We're going to see seven times where Joseph weeps in this historical narrative. Seven times. Now, just before I give you the rest, right? What is significant about that, just from a good Bible student perspective? Before we, I'm going to give you all seven, but I think you've already identified. We've clearly identified, but we'll go through all three, all seven, right? What what, what should jump out at you immediately as a good Bible student? Because this is what I've been waiting all week for. Someone to go, hey, did you notice? But nobody, nobody. I was waiting for this, okay? But what what should jump out at you? Okay, well, that should be the last thing you look at. Okay, the emotions, right? Because this, because we get this idea that you know Joseph is just like you know walks around with a halo, his feet doesn't touch the ground, and then we already looked at. Wait a minute, who did he marry? Well, why did he marry a woman who was a pagan named after an Egyptian god? Like what? There's some. Yeah, you're right. So, but the point is here: the emotions demonstrate that this is. There's, some, there's something going on here, right? And that's, that's to tell you, the reader, okay, there's real emotion here. Because if there wasn't real emotion, yeah, I would be like, this story is complete garbage, right? Because we, I would have real emotion. Now, the difference is, he weeps. My thing would be like, hey, I know a good prison for all of you, okay? In fact, go get the entire family, we're gonna have a family reunion, you're gonna be in prison, and I'm gonna laugh all the way home. In fact, I'm gonna leave you here in Egypt, and I'm going back home and taking over the whole business. Right? And I know you're like, oh, I would be too, you know, whatever, okay? We all act godly in church, and then as soon as we get out of church, the reality shows that we stab each other in the back and lie. Okay, give me a break, okay? So, but there's emotion here. I want you to realize there is emotion. That is key to this entire subject. So, where was the first the first time he weeps is Genesis 4224. Everybody saw that? The second one is 4330. The third one is Genesis 45, 2. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard. He's weeping so loud that other people are like, whoa. That, 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 there's some emotions here. Strong emotions. Reveal what? That there's something going on inside. Now, let, now let's make it, this, this is something we could do, all right? We're not going to do it right now, but this is something we could do. We could go through all seven, and it would be, because this is just the way Christians do, we argue over everything, we could try to interpret each time he weeps, and what does it indicate? Because weeping can indicate what kinds of things? What can weeping indicate? Can, okay, obviously sorrow. Grief, joy. Okay, I was hoping for someone to say, some people cry when they're, (laughs) I'm so happy. (laughs) I've never been so happy. Stop crying. Okay, right? All right. So joy, anger, grief, sorrow. So we could go through each time and go, what does that indicate? And trust me, would we... We, for every, t- where, wherever 10 Christians are, we would get 75 different answers. I'm right. right. I've only read it once, but I'm right. Okay. That, you know, that's what would happen. Okay. It just drives me crazy the way Christians do that. But okay. I've never studied it. I don't care to study it. I'm not going to do any study, but I'll tell you what it means because I'm an expert. Okay. All right. But the, it would be interesting to do that. Yes. It would be interesting to do that, but we're not going to do that tonight. All right. All right. So what was the first one? Forty two twenty three next one. 43-30, one. 45-2. And the next one is chapter 45. Anybody know where? Verse 14, And he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. Moreover, he kissed all his brethren and wept upon them. And after that, his brethren talked with him. Now that one we may get up, I think that's pretty obvious maybe what kind of weeping is going on there. Right? Okay. I think I think I think I think some of these could be clear, right? I guarantee you I could find 10 commentaries that would give us different answers, okay? But that's okay. All right, trust me, I could do that. All we have to do is go look up the church fathers and who knows what in the world they would be saying at this point. All right, 46:29. That church fathers app whoo. Has some crazy stuff, all right. All right Genesis 46:29. All right, here we go. And Joseph made ready his chariot. This is 46 29, I believe. And Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to meet Israel, uh, his father, to Goshen, and presented himself upon him. And he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while, okay? Like he had a long cry. There is some weeping going on here, okay? Which one was that? Yeah, that was number five, right? Number six is Genesis chapter 50, verse one. OK, let's count this again. All right. The first one is which, what verse? Forty two twenty four. The second one? 40 30. The third one? 45, 2. The fourth one? 14 through 15. The fifth one? Yeah, I counted that as one. Yeah, I counted that as one. OK. All right. All right and the next one? Forty six twenty all right, I was, I was trying to figure out what happened, but yeah, okay, there's, they, they, there's multiple weeping there, but I counted it as one, okay, because the main, remember, we're looking at each time Joseph wept, right, all right, so, and then the next one was what we just said, uh, of 46, 29, then the next one is 51, and Joseph fell upon his father's face and wept upon him and kissed him, everybody see that one, and then the seventh one is chapter 50, verse 17, Right, Um, I think it's this one. Is it 57? Yeah, guys, verse 17. So shall ye say unto uh, Joseph, uh, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin, for they did unto thee evil. And now we pray thee, forgive the trespass of the servants of God of thy father. And Joseph wept when they spake unto him. Seven times. Everybody got that? Now, Again, the seven times can indicate first and foremost the emotion of this entire narrative, right? And so this makes it perfect in dealing with resentment, envy, anger, bitterness, because you could understand Joseph would have every reason from a human perspective to be very bitter and very upset. And we'll look at some of this, but there's something interesting here. And Seth pointed this one out. The next thing that would be interesting here is not only that he weeps all of these different times in this narrative, but it happens seven. Doesn't happen five, doesn't happen eight. And trust me, any commentary commentary is probably going to point out the fact that it's seven. Now, I don't like numerology, and I don't even think it's a path that we should travel down, but typically, seven is said to represent what? Completion. Completion, right? That it shows something is complete. So this would show, just from a literary idea, not saying that it wasn't literal seven times, but that now the, all of it has reached a completion, a conclusion. All of the emotion has led to a conclusion. But what is interesting is the seven times fall into a very interesting pattern, all right? So we could call this Joseph's Chiastic Tears. Chiastic is spelled C-H-I-A-S-T-I-C, Chiastic. Because if you take the seven and you look at it, they are arranged in a a chiastic arrangement. And a chiastic arrangement would be what is called a a chiasm. And a chiasm is spelled C-H-I-A-S-M. Chiasm. Yeah, now the letters come into play, all right? Now, okay. So, as one source says, as the biblical author narrates the tearful scenes of Joseph we can notice not only that the scenes are seven in number, but that they're also chiastic in arrangement, a chiasm. Now, what is a chiasm? I've already given you a clue. It's a literary device. It's a literary device. And a literary device that follows a pattern. And that pattern is A, B, C. C, D, C, B, A. Everybody see that? Now, this is kind of, I'll try to explain. I'm going to borrow from a source here. I'm going to try to explain how the pattern works, All right? Does everybody kind of see, looking at those letters, do you see a pattern emerging? What, what, what should jump out when you look at those letters? There's one that's not repeated. D. All right, okay. Okay, all right. That's that's good. But here we go. The first and last items match. You see A and A. The second and second to last items match. See that? B and B. And so on in the pattern. The middle item, D, is the unrepeated hinge and serves as the heart of the chiasm. It serves as the heart of it. Now, a couple of things. Chiosms appear throughout the Bible. And whenever they show up, some people make much to do about them. Sometimes I think that what happens is commentaries, sometimes preachers, seminary professors love to say, look, there's a chiasm there. Isn't that awesome? I pointed that out. See how smart I am? All right? Well, it's wonderful to point them out. But if all you're doing is pointing them out in order to look smart or to show you that you saw something that nobody else saw, you got to be careful with that, right? What's the, what's the issue that should be the most important to anyone when you notice a chiasm is there in the text? Does this structure help me better understand or interpret what is going on? Right? If all it does is if it if it adds more confusion to it. Now, you've got to make sure that whatever conclusion you arrive arises from the chiasm, you've got to make sure that it, it still May, meets basic hermeneutical rules, right? You can't like, like if I'm reading this text, this would seem to be the idea here and you're like, but if there's a chiasm and D is here and it means, and you're like, what are, you, what are you talking about? Okay, wait, whoa, slow down, okay? You can't go crazy, right? But you always want to at least investigate. So we're going to do a little investigation. A little investigation and try to understand what this structure is and, and, and what it possibly indicates, all right? Okay, so we've got the pattern. What's the pattern? A, B, C, D, C, B, A. The first and last items, items match, the second uh, and second to the last items match, and so on, right? So A matches A, B matches B, C matches C, and D is left out. Well, it's not left out, but it's not a part of the pattern in that sense, all right? Does that make sense? So... The scenes of Joseph weeping appear seven in number, but they are also chiastic in arrangement. I want to make sure you have that down. They're chiastic in their arrangement, and they're seven in number. Now, you know, the church fathers probably went cuckoo for cocoa puffs over this stuff. Right? They probably lost their minds. Who knows what they were coming up with? Okay? Who knows? They probably went crazy over this, right? And it's easy to go crazy over Once you notice, you're like, whoa, that's interesting. But we'll see what we can come up with, right? All right. Here's how to look at the narrative and this chiastic structure or arrangement. Now, please note, this is a literary device. It is used in, literary, in, in literature. And in many cases, in literature, it is very, very significant. A lot of times people will read a book and not even realize that there's a chiastic arrangement then tell you what the book means and you're like, you don't know what you're talking about. It's right, there. just stop talking, <laughs> stop talking. Okay, but, but in this case, I, I'm not going to be dogmatic here. Like, is this going to change our entire meaning? I think it'll be interesting. We'll, we'll see, all right? Everybody with me? All right, here we go. Oh, we got so much to do and so little time to do it. All right. So what's the first letter we need to look at? A, look at Genesis 42, verse 24. Genesis 42, 24. See, I was going to do this for the Bible study exercise and just give it as an assignment for everyone to figure out, but I couldn't resist talking about it here. All right, everybody ready? Genesis 42, 24. And he turned himself about from them and wept, He returned to them again and communed with them and took from them Simeon and bound him before their eyes. Look at Genesis 50, verse 17. Genesis 50, verse 17. So shall you say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin, for they did, not, they did unto thee evil. And now we pray thee, Forgive the trespass of the servants of God, or, uh, of thy father. And Joseph wept when they spake unto him. Now, according to, to at least one source. Now that fifty seventeen, mm, we, we may have to do a little work on here. But I'm just going to go with the theory. All right. Here is the theory: Joseph's weeping takes place apart from his brothers. We clearly see that in forty two twenty four. Can it, would everyone agree that it's clearly there in forty two twenty four? All right. Do do we believe it's there in fifty seventeen? You may have to go back and look at context. Do we agree with this or disagree? Okay, so can we agree that in both cases, Joseph weeping takes place apart from his brothers? So far, so good? All right, just may want to write that down. Okay, all right, so they're separate. All right, I'm I'm just, I like to, remember I like to throw out the question to get you to answer it, okay? All right, is everybody good? Next, in both places, his weeping is preceded by his brothers talking about the wicked deed they have committed against him. Does everybody see that in 42, 24? You might have to read the verses before. Yeah, they're talking and they they don't know that Joseph can understand. Correct? All right. Go to 50, 17. We I mean, have to start in verse 15 for context. 50, 15. 50, yeah, 50, 15 through 17. We're trying to see if the weeping is preceded by his brothers talking about the wicked deed that they have committed against him. Okay. Now, what. Let's just stop right here. So they're saying that the first part of the chiasm is dealing with the fact that Joseph in both cases weeps apart from his brothers and the weeping is preceded by his brothers talking about the wicked deed that they've committed against him. Why is that significant? Well, I mean, obviously that's the whole point of the chiasm. They have to have the same structure, right? That's why they're the A and the A. Okay, but I'm saying from an interpretive standpoint, the, okay, the emotions are similar. That this, this is in, a, think of it about this way. This is kind of the beginning of the process. So whenever he hears the retelling of what has happened to him, he's overwhelmed with the emotion. So that means this emotion could be a lot of different things, right? Like he hears them talking about the evil things he's done to him. This could be like, He's upset about it. Yeah, you hurt me. Yeah, you met. Now he doesn't say anything to them and you could talk about why has he played this long drawn out game, right? Why is he played the long drawn out game? Was that right? Is that a lot of people justify his actions? Right? We can get a whole discussion there, but I'm just saying that he hears about it, he's upset and he weeps alone. Yes? Or apart at least alone from his brothers. He's apart from his brothers. Yes? That, that, that's the initial part. There's the A. Everybody got the A? OK? Now that will be, what, what will be the next one? B. Very good. You're you great at this, okay? All right? Now, according to them, you ready? Uh, look at I'm going to give you a number of verses here. Um, go to 43:30. 43.30, we'll see if this works. All right, look at the context, and I want you, what prompts Joseph's weeping? What prompts the weeping in 43.30? Okay, just, just say Benjamin prompts the weeping. Is that, is, that, is, that, is that a good way of saying it? Okay. Go to 51. What happens in 51? 50, verse 1. Jacob prompts the weeping. All right, so I'm going to describe it this way. And the second and sixth scenes. B, Joseph's weeping is prompted by one person in particular, by Benjamin in 43.30 and by Jacob in chapter 50 verse 1. Right before these verses, we learn in 43.28 that Jacob is alive and in 51 that Jacob has died. Is that, is that fair? Agreed or no? Okay, all right. So what why, what is significant about this? The first one, he, he hears about what has happened. He, he It brings back the memories of it. What is significant here? This demonstrates, and I think we can see this, that everything that's happened to him, a lot of the emotions are connected to individuals, right? Let's remember, who is he ripped from? His father who loved him. More than any than the others, right? So he is separate. So now that there's a, in other words, there's the emotional relationship connection that's causing the emotions here, right? In other words, it's beyond just the event that happened to him. It's now the emotions of relationship that comes into play here. Would everyone agree that that, that makes sense? Okay, all right? The third and fifth scene would be what letter? C. Now, um let's look at a couple of these. Go to 45:2. 45:2. Two. Two. What happens in 45:2? Go back to the previous verse. And 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 read 1 through 3. I'm just going to I'll read it for you. Then okay? Well, Joseph could not uh, reframe himself because all of them stood by him. And he cried because every man to go out from me. And then stood no man with him while Joseph made uh, himself known unto his brethren. And he wept aloud and the Egyptians heard. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph, doth my father yet live? And his brethren could not answer him for they were troubled at his presence. All right. Just keep that in mind, all right? Then go to forty six twenty nine. And Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father to, to Goshen and presented himself unto him and he fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Everybody see that? Now, this one, well, I'm just going to read what they what the argument here. Joseph's weeping occurs as he presents himself to people from whom he's been relationally separated to his brothers in 45 and to Jacob in 46, 29. And each scene, there is language about Joseph's father being alive. So what is significant about this one? Now the weeping occurs once he presents himself to those he has been separated with. So now it went from hearing about it, right? Then it was about certain individuals, now it's about the can we say confrontation, the revealing, the in other words, everything coming out. Yes. Okay? So far so good. Oh, I'm going as fast as I can. I'm going as fast as I can. All right. Okay. Now, in the fourth and central of the seven scenes, right? And we put them all together, right? First and last. We went through each one. Okay, now we're at the fourth and central of the seven scenes. That would be which letter? D. All right. Look at 45-15 or 45-14 and then 45-15. 45.14 and 45.15. Now, I know I'm not reading these, so those listening online will be like, you're not reading the verses. Okay, I'll get your Bible out, okay, because I'm trying to get you guys to look at it and answer it, okay? Well, and, and to try to speed up time and try to reading of all of this, okay? What, what do we have in 14 and 15? He fell upon his brother, he wept, and he kissed his brethren and wept. Right. Everybody see that. All right. In the fourth and central of the seven scenes, Joseph weeps as he reunites with his brothers, both physically and emotionally. Highlighting the importance of this scene is the report that Joseph wept first on Benjamin and then on his other brothers. Two acts of weeping in the same scene. Now, what do you think that is so important The story goes like this. The wrong committed against Joseph, we witness, yes. We see the emotion of the wrong done to him expressed, and it ends with the emotion of reconciliation. <clears throat> it ends with reconciliation if I don't lose my voice, right? Now. This brings the whole story together is it ends with reconciliation, but this is so very 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 important. <clears throat> I want you to think about this. Was it the process of reconciliation that healed the bitterness? Or was it the absence of bitterness that led to the reconciliation? Ooh, that's important. Well, did he or didn't he? Okay. He didn't act out, but he, is, he definitely had some strong emotions over it because as soon as he realizes that's his brother's, Boom, he's weeping, right? Now, that remember I said how we interpret the weeping? Do I interpret the weeping like, oh my goodness, it can't be them, it can't be them. After all of this, like, you know, there's a whole emotions there, but he gets it together. But I'll, again, I'm going to ask the question, what, how did I phrase it? Was it the reconciliation that healed the bitterness or was it the absence of bitterness that led to the reconciliation? Now this is an important question because how do a lot of people approach the subject of bitterness? There's a common idea that until there's reconciliation, I can't resolve my bitterness. Some people see reconciliation as the key to fixing the bitterness. I'm going to argue that the bitterness is the thing that will keep the reconciliation from happening. And not only that, this is so very important. There are are millions of situations where there can't be reconciliation. Reconciliation. So if you're looking for reconciliation to fix your bitterness, you're going to be living with bitterness and bitterness will trouble you and corrupt other people. So there's got to be a way to deal with this. So, here's my question. All right? Now, I know we didn't read everything here, but I mean, the 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 us, you know, I have to when we're doing the Bible study exercise, I know that there's people who don't participate, but I have to focus on the people who do. All right. So for everyone who's been participating in the Bible study exercise, my question would be, be, because everyone's supposed to have been reading these chapters all week, as we reach a Wednesday night, does the text present a solution to bitterness? That is the question that I want to try to resolve here tonight. Does the text present a solution to bitterness? So based off what maybe you've seen tonight or based off what you know, what is the possible solution presented to bitterness in Genesis basically 41 to 50? Do you think that's the solution? Okay. All right. We're getting too good. We we're getting, we're, getting, we're getting two going on here. Okay, so we have one that says forgiveness. How would you s- describe yours, uh, Seth? Okay, yeah, I mean that's the verse. But how would you how would you like describe it or call it? What would you call that that? Okay. <clears throat> Okay? All right? Th- that's all That's all good ways of saying it. So first, Seth is offering up a verse as a possible solution to the bitterness, which is the right thing to do. All right? That's the right thing to do. Because I said, is the answer found here in Genesis? Right? Because we'll, we'll turn to psychology. We'll turn to... To, you know, well, my grandma used to say that if you're bitter, you know, drink some lemonade or, you know, if you're whatever garbage, okay, some kind of nonsense. Okay, throw all of that out. Where is that verse that Seth is referencing? Chapter 50, verse 18 or verse 20. Which is it? It's 20. Okay, good. Okay. It's somewhere in chapter 50. Now, this is interesting that it's after chapter 50. It's in chapter 50, right? right? Why is it interesting? All the weeping is over. All the weeping is over, and the weeping ended with what? Remember what's the hinge of the chiasm? Reconciliation. That's the hinge. Right? Reconciliation has occurred, and I'm thinking. As a good Bible student, well, why were you able to reconcile? Is it just because, like, do I read the story? Well, Joseph is just better than everyone else. Joseph is just a picture of Jesus because everyone focuses on that. Everyone forgets, well, Joseph also married a pagan, right? Like, well, we could go into some other issues going on here, okay? But remember, I, the memory verse for one week was the, his wife that he married, right? And that whole situation, okay? But the, my thinking is, okay, jo- how did Joseph do it? How, I don't know about you, when you read the story, do you not go, how did Joseph do it? Because I'm telling you, man, people could do a lot less to me than what happened to Joseph, and I'd have like, uh, I really don't know about this whole reconciliation. Let's Let's say we reconciled and never speak to each other again. Never talk to me. Never look at me. Never speak because I'm that's that's my handling of it. My handling is it. Okay, just go away. I don't need you. My life is great. Like you know, I'll never forget. I'll, I'll never forget that. Basically, for me, and one way when I drove out of Texas, uh, when I was on that Greyhound bus and I left Texas. For my first duty assignment at Offutt Air Force Base, there was a part of me that's like, I'm done, right? But it really ended for me in New York City and an airport because I'm deployed to Desert Storm. Our plane breaks down. We're in the middle of New York City. We're stuck on the plane. They're like, Well, you can go into the airport in this little room because they're worried about terrorist attacks. So we're in this little room. We can't go anywhere. And I'm like, Oh, there's a payphone. My dad knows I've been deployed, right? You know, I don't even know what's going on. I'll call him and give an update. I know the kids are like, just use your cell phone. Okay, there's no cell phones, okay? So I pick up the pay phone and I call. My dad picks up, denies the call. I'm done. The end. I don't care. Don't need them. Never needed them. Finished. Don't care about reconciliation. Don't care about anything. Done with everyone. Just leave me alone. You're all dead. I'm done. Now, you can say, How ungodly. You can just speak to my hand and the door because I, 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 I hate when people always tell you, This is the way you should handle your family situation. I was done. All right? So, in my estimation, it's not about walking away mad. It's not about walking away bitter. It's just about walking away. Right? To me, I, I, just move on. But that doesn't mean that there, even when I tell the story, the emotions come back. That's a messed up thing to do to someone, especially if it's your son. It's one thing, if it's a stranger, like, I don't know who you are. Okay, but even then, you may want to go, are you okay? <laughs> like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's kind of messed up. So this, the emotions are still there. But my tendency is just like, just forget it. Just forget it. So I, when I'm looking at this, I'm like, well, how did Joseph just... Now, he, he still went through this long process. And we can get it. Bible students will debate all day on this. The fact that he went through all, Remember the whole game he played? Right? try to get them all worried, and then like, you know, bring this, and where's that person, all the things he did. Some of that almost indicates to me there, there's a little bit of bitterness going on, right? I mean, come on. He, he messed with them. He messed with them. It's almost like I'm going to make you feel what I felt a little bit, right? I'm going to make you feel fearful. I'm, I mean, there's a little playing games. there. Now, I know that we're not supposed to say that we're like, no, 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 no. Everything Joseph did was perfect. Everything Joseph did was righteous, okay? He was a human being. Because, I mean, he could have just said, hey, guys, it's me. You're forgiven. But, he know, he, he goes away and weeps. Then he comes back and acts he, he plays a game. There's no way to... I know that what I'm saying is Christians are going to get mad. He plays a game. And I don't think that's the way you resolve bitterness is playing games. I don't think that's the way it works. So, he get, But he works through that. Now, I'm not saying the game was good, but he works through it to ultimately end up with reconciliation. But there had to be something that gets him through it. Because I don't even know if the game would be satisfying enough in and of itself. So the verses, chapter 50, verse 20, correct? Right? Which reads, And Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? Ooh, that's, that verse always gets forgotten in this, right? Everyone forgets this. What is he indicating here? I'm not God. I'm not God. Now, let's, I, want you to ask, I want you to ask yourself a question. When it comes to bitterness, is there a tendency? I'm in no way diminishing anyone's pain. I'm in no way of diminishing anyone's suffering. I'm asking you though, because you have been treated unfairly, is it possible that we cling to bitterness because we almost want to be in the place of God to issue out punishment, revenge, judgment, and condemnation. We want them to feel the weight of their wrong. We want them to... Su- is, it, is it possible that whenever we suffer, suffer and we feel bitterness, it's because we're trying to place ourselves in the position of God to execute judgment and wrath upon those who have done us wrong. I don't know about you, I like that feeling of wanting to, I'm going to get them back. Because immediately, look, think about this. The minute you feel bitterness, do you not feel at least morally superior to the people you feel bitterness towards? That's why I asked you at the beginning to remember all the things you have done. But that moment, I feel I feel morally superior anytime I tell the story. I feel morally superior to a father who wouldn't even take a collect phone call for a son being deployed to war. I feel morally superior. And he should pay for it. But am I God? Am I morally superior? Not if we look at morality more than just one action. Now, every time I tell the story, I feel morally superior. Isn't it interesting that he says, don't fear. Am I in the place of God? Joseph realizes he's not God. Now, you could say maybe playing the game, he was trying to act a little bit like God. Again, we can can judge those actions all day. The Bible doesn't judge. Remember, over and over in the historical narrative, sometimes God doesn't judge the action, right? Like when Abram slept with Hagar, it doesn't judge the action. Correct? Like so sometimes it's really weird that it doesn't judge the action. We want to judge the action. So we can sit there and debate that. But at this point, at least... Joseph, after the chiasm cycle runs its course, he realizes, I'm not God. I think, I think I'm going to just, I want you to write that down. The first key in dealing with bitterness is realize you're not God. You got to ask yourself, is a feeling of moral superiority making you hold on to, think how twisted that is. Is it, is it possible that a moral superiority is the very thing causing you to hold on to bitterness, which demonstrates you're not morally superior? Oh, that's deep, isn't it? Now, look I don't, I don't want you, look, I don't want anyone to think I'm minimizing your pain, because I don't know what you wrote down as the horrible things that happened to you. But I'm right there with you. This is not easy for me to hear. Because I don't like to think, mm, I, you know, the things my parents did to me, and I'm not morally superior. Now, that doesn't that doesn't diminish the wrong they did. I don't want you to think that doesn't say, well, they're what they did is okay. No, it just means like they messed up, and I'm a sinner. They're a sinner. I'm not God. That's all I'm trying to. To, to uh, uh, I don't want anyone to view this in an incorrect way, right? Because some people have suffered horribly, and yes, what was done is sinful but we're all sinful, right? Does that make sense? Okay, what's the next thing he says? But as for you, you thought evil against me. See, he doesn't deny that what they did was evil, right? Remember, you don't have to pretend that what someone did to you isn't evil to get rid of bitterness. You can acknowledge what they did was wrong. But here's the crazy part. But God meant it. Unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. Now, here is the question How does an understanding of God's sovereignty heal bitterness? How does the reality of God's sovereignty fix bitterness? Here's the way I think it has to work. I think. That an understanding that we're not morally superior, we're not God, and understanding the sovereignty of God is the very thing that makes reconciliation possible. I don't think it's reconciliation that fixes it. I think it's those two things that makes reconciliation possible. And even if reconciliation doesn't occur, those two things are supposed to fix bitterness. But I, I'm I, look. I don't like this answer. I'll make it very clear. Does anyone like that answer? I know we all preach it and everybody's like, amen, that's a good sermon, pastor. Now let me go home and have supper. Okay. No, the, I, I look at that and I'm like, what jo- What are you talking about, Joseph? Because immediately what do I do? Okay, you're right. I'm not bitter at my brothers. I'm bitter at God. <laughs> right? I mean, am I the only... Y'all are looking at me like... A, you know, no one's ever going to come back to our church if you keep preaching this way. Okay, uh, But look, the, the, this is, I mean, that's what the text says. So, w- at a roundabout way, how's he handling his bitterness? It's not your fault. God designed the entire situation. God designed this entire chiastic structure. He, he designed the entire chiasm so that everyone can go, well, so whenever I face bitterness, so think of what is bitterness? Anger? Well, I gave a definition at the earlier. Anger and disappointment in how you have been treated. So this is the idea that no matter how I've been treated, I realize that I'm not morally superior of the ones who treated me in whatever way I'm upset about, and that God is sovereign over it. That, I'm not, I, well, I don't know what to do with that. Everyone, see, I, I, it blows my mind how people can like, they read Job and like, isn't that a great book? And I'm like, what in the world? There's, that's horrific. That's a horrible story. Hey, isn't that story of Joseph just so uplifting and wonderful? No, because it's telling me that that whatever a person did to me God was working in it somehow. Now, either A, I just say, well, no, that just deals with Joseph. It has nothing to do with us. But then that that destroys the idea that God is sovereign in my life, which the Bible says he works all things according to his good pleasure and will. So that doesn't work. So then how do I understand this? That somehow I have, listen, are you ready for this? I'm going to have to end with this because we're out of time, but this may spark all kinds of conversation this week. That's the whole point of the Bible study exercises. It's really, I do part of the work and I give the rest to everyone else. I think the only way to overcome bitterness is you have to find a way to be satisfied with God's will over your emotional comfort. Now, nah, that's not easy. And, and listen, anyone listening online, if you've gone through horrible things, please note the person talking to you. I've suffered some pretty messed up stuff in my life, okay? So I don't want you to think that I'm saying this, like, just get over it. I'm, say, I, I'm not good at this because I have to look back at things that happened in my childhood and go, don't be bitter at my parents because I'm not morally superior over them. I'm not God. And God worked For his purpose, not my pleasure, not my comfort, for his purpose. So I have to be content with God's purpose and my pain. I have to be content with God's purpose and my suffering. I have to be uh, content with God's purpose and my betrayal or my hurt. And I so cling to God's purpose that I respond to bitterness with love and forgiveness. Because that's the only way. You've got to overcome bitterness with love and forgiveness. I mean, it's not just about not being bitter. You're supposed to love and forgive the very person who mistreated you. Doesn't mean you have to hang out with them, but it just means there's got to be love and forgiveness. How do you overcome that bitterness? Now, we're, I don't know what time we started, Okay. I know we started late because everybody got here about 15 after, so you know, I, 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 I got at least another 30 minutes. Okay, no, I'll, I'll stop. But I want you to just try to contemplate that. that in, when the chapter ends, we're left with only two possible solutions to how this all played out. And those two solutions is Joseph going, I'm not God. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. And he was, listen, he was content with what, God's, what God purposed, he found contentment in God's purpose over his own comfort. I mean, that's insanity. He was sold as a slave and put in prison for crying out loud. And he didn't do anything wrong. And he's like, hey guys, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it, it's all good. It's all good. You I know, you guys are some really bad brothers. You really wanted to do evil to me. Okay, but I don't worry about what you do because I'm content with God's purpose. And, I'm, and I, if I was standing there looking at this, I'd be like, hey, guys, I would just go back home because your brother's crazy. Your brother's insane. Okay, I don't know what's up. Just run. I wouldn't be like, no, your brother is a godly man. I'd be like, your brother is crazy. Just run just run now. Get as far from Egypt as you can and forget that Joseph is your brother because he's insane. And you can say, how dare you say that? Give me a break. Because we're like, we all read the story like, it's so good. And then immediately we walk out and we get in the car and we're like, "Ha!" What? What do you? And you start yelling at your husband. You get all upset. You get mad. I can't believe you treat me this way. I can't believe you. I can't believe you embarrass me in front of you. And we start yelling and screaming at someone. And like, you know, what you need to do is like, honey, I thought you thought Genesis was a great book. Yeah, I'm a jerk. Yeah, I did evil to you. But God meant it for good. Now, I'm not saying you should use that to excuse your behavior. Okay, obviously. But I'm saying that you're supposed to view it as what's God's purpose in my husband being a loser. Doesn't excuse the husband being a loser. Doesn't. But you got to see God's purpose beyond it. And that's hard to do. See, it's, it's easy sitting here, right? It's e- I, I mean, sitting here in church, we can all say Amen. But as soon as we get home, it's not easy to say amen to it anymore, right? Listen, if we can't handle the little irritations, then how are we supposed to handle the big pain, the big suffering, the big betrayal? Because even the little irritations would be be happening because of what purpose? God. So my thing is, okay, not my comfort, but God's purpose. There's no, I'm not saying, it's. A, look, psychologists would say this is the most damaging thing. I mean, they would, the psychologists would be like, this guy, this is horrible. This would not fit in many counseling session." But if you think about humanistic counseling, doesn't really have a good answer for it anyway, right? Just forgive. Well, why should I forgive? Right? Why, why, why from a worldly perspective, why should I forgive anyone? Give me a break. I'm not forgiving anybody. I'm declaring war on the entire world. Well, that's not good. For so what? Re- it's not good for your mental health. Who cares about my mental health? I want revenge. Right? Like I have to have a, the- a, a theology and a biblical, a transcendent God that tells me there's a morality within how to handle this, and that creates problems. So I'll leave it there. You can struggle with it, and if you come up with a great answer and how to understand it, then, then great. But I, I don't. Th- I'm not saying it's easy. I. I I, I, don't, I don't think I'll ever grasp what Joseph does here. It's mind-boggling to me. I get the, I get the part, I'm not God. I, I can, I can, that next part is like, hey, God's at work. And I'm, I'm content with it. I wish I could be content with God's work. I kind of typically want to say, uh, I got a question. Mm, I think he messed up right there. <laughs> I, I'm not so sure about that. And you may act like that you, you don't do that, but I have a feeling that you get upset and complain a lot, right? So let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. A very, very interesting passage, a structure, what it all means. I don't know if we'll ever truly understand, but I think we can honestly say this. We're not always content with your will. We want your will to correspond to our pleasure and our comfort. When it doesn't, we tend to get bitter. Forgive us for our bitterness and help us have an eternal perspective and our temporal suffering. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,